Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Been a few weeks since we've been there, and so we're picking up in our study through the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we pick up in chapter 9 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a rousing time of worship. You certainly are worth celebrating and and uh, surrendering our lives to. And now as we take the time, please settle our hearts, enable us, Lord, to hear your word, that it would go way past our intellect. It would go down deep into our hearts and, and affect change, Lord. We want you to conquer more territory in us, that we might experience more of your peace, more of your plan. Guide us this morning through the scriptures, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Small town church I heard about was experiencing a revival. Dozens of people had gotten saved. In fact, they extended it to a full two weeks of meetings every night. And God was really moving. In fact, a few people, even during the services, had actually gotten healed. Well, at the end of the service, a guy got in line for prayer, and the pastor said to him, well, how can I pray for you? And the guy said, well, I need prayer for my hearing. And so the pastor launched into an enthusiastic and long prayer, even put his fingers into his ears and got very dead, you know, demonstrative and all that. And at the end said, amen, and stood back and said, how's your hearing now? And the guy said, well, I'm not sure. My hearing is until next week. <laughs> Did you get it? Well, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, revival had broken out in Jerusalem. You remember, Nehemiah had gone back with a large crew of people to rebuild the walls and lift Jerusalem out of the ruins. Well, the wall at this point was done, a moment of great accomplishment, a great sense of God's blessing and favor and victory. They took a short break, went back home to their villages, and then came back in the seventh month during the feast days. And it was there that people said to Ezra, Bring out the book. I love saying that. Bring out the Bible. So for seven days, Ezra reads chapters and verses of the Bible and teaches verse by verse through the Old Testament. And at that point, the city explodes with joy and celebration, over 50,000 screaming hallelujah. And if you're a student of the Bible, I love this section because it, it shows the marks of genuine revival. The people had a hunger for the word there was a six-hour Bible study. Just saying. A lot of rejoicing and all that. And it had rekindled their relationship with the Lord. It was really a great moment in their history. And in chapter 8, we saw the results of and benefits of Ezra teaching through the Bible. Chapter 8, verse 8, it says, He read distinctly from the Bible in the law of God and gave the sense and help the people to understand the reading. And so as Nehemiah was teaching through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, beautiful moment of everybody getting it. In fact, the Levites were told were sprinkled throughout the crowd. So as he would take a break from reading, they were answering questions. And remember, this is the new generation. They weren't born in Jerusalem. They were born in Babylon, born in Persia. So a lot of them are hearing it for the first time, and they're going, oh, finally, I get it. And they were growing in their understanding. And I see a lot of that here, by the way. As we go through the Bible, I see the looks on faces that say, wow, I had no idea. I've never gone through that part of the Bible before, and I finally grasp what God is saying. And it's just a, a wonderful thing when somebody really grasps his love and his truth and grows in it. 
Another benefit was in chapter 8, verse 17, they were rediscovering neglected truths that they had been ignoring for years. you got to catch a scene. As Ezra's reading through the Bible, they get to Deuteronomy 16, where the Bible explained that they were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, at which they had not observed, we're told, since the days of Joshua. Now, that was almost a 1,000 years So they had neglected the celebration, at least nationally, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the new generation, for most of them, they were doing it for the first time. And remember, Tabernacle was the feast that was basically a national campout. They remembered and looked back on the wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. They would camp in tents and booths, and they would tell the story of the exodus, of what happened in Egypt, what happened at the Red Sea, and then the journey that brought them into the promised land. But see what that's saying. Because they were going through the Bible, they were rediscovering truths about God that had been lost for almost a thousand years. And very often that's what happened when revival takes place. Remember Martin Luther, who began to really study the Bible and read, and the Holy Spirit lit him up like a light bulb, and he was the guy who rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith, which the church in that day was not teaching, that we're saved by our faith, not by works. And so he began to preach it, uh, what had been neglected. They tried to kill him for doing so, but it changed the world and brought great truth to the church again. In our day, we've rediscovered the truth of Christ's return and the rapture of the church. You know, there are some today say, well, you know, the organized church for really a few hundred years has not really taught about the rapture. That's kind of a new idea. That's not historic church doctrine. Yes, it is. That's, that's the New Testament. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's John 14. That's 1 Corinthians 15. That's the per, first part of the book of Revelation. These were things that the first generation of the church embraced and taught and looked forward to. And now we in this last generation, I believe, have rediscovered what their, the hope of the church was, the glorious appearing of Jesus for his church. Another benefit we find now in chapter 9. As they go through the Bible, and the result of this revival is now brokenness and repentance. How different. The mood changes now in chapter 9. They go from celebration to humiliation. They go from feasting to fasting. And the more they hear of the word, the more they hear about God's goodness, the more they understand of his love and his truth, the more aware that they as a nation and a people have fallen so far from that that they had many failures, and so tears now begin to flow. Surprising thing, uh, if you're an older believer, maybe you, you understand this. The closer you get to God, the more you understand of his grace and truth, the more aware you become of your need to confess your sins. It's just reality. In fact, the older in the Lord you get, the more confessing you probably ought to be doing. And I see that true here at church, you know. I see the faces as they get it. Genuine tears begin to flow as they realize how good God has been. Spurgeon said, repentance and faith always grow together. Repentance is not just the first step in the Christian life. It's the practice of a lifetime. So chapter 9 is a wonderful chapter. It's it's the nation. It's the new generation that is now closer to God than they've been in a long time. And as a result of it, there's genuine brokenness and repentance. And the beautiful thing about it is, It's not the Day of Atonement. 
It's not a scheduled day or a feast day or a practice to look back and confess their sins. This is a spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what America needs, by the way. America needs a spirit-driven revival that stirs the hearts and draws people back to the Lord himself. Now, in this chapter, they rehearse their history. They confess that they have sinned against God and blown it. But they also, in contrast, remind themselves that God has been gracious and patient and forgiven them and kept all of his promises. So let's pick up in verse 1 where it says this. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, about three hours, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God, another three hours. Then Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chennai stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God and the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hajaniah, <laughs> Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, there's some possible names for your next son, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. For you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it and the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all and the host of heaven worships you. So now in Jerusalem, after this celebration, the mood changes. From spontaneous celebration to humble, quiet, if you will, confession and prayer. And by the way, let me just say, every Christian needs a season like this. Now, sometimes it's great to rejoice and there's lots of things to be happy about and God's blessing and all that. That's a part of our lives. But sometimes there are seasons where God calls us to stop and look back a little and confess and recognize his blessing and our failures uh, behind us says that they fasted. By the way, you always know a Christian is serious when they give up eating. The idea here was, the principle was, set aside the physical needs and the physical priority, food, to focus on the spiritual needs and priorities. I think that's healthy for all of us. They do that here. They put on sackcloth. I don't um, recommend this, honestly, but it was a symbolic garment that they would put on, kind of like a burlap sack, if you will. It was intended to be uncomfortable, and part of it was a sign of mourning. It indicated that you were grieving, in this sense, grieving over your own sin and the choices that had brought misery into your life. So they put on sackcloth, and then they put dust on their heads. I don't recommend this either. But this kind of harks back, I think, to Genesis, where uh, God, it says, made Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. They're remembering what, they, what they're made of, that they're just mud with the, the spirit of God inside them, with the spirit of God in, in, in giving them life. And by the way, your physical bodies are made up of the same basic 17 elements that make up dirt. So we're a bunch of dirt clods with the breath of life. That's really all we are. And our bodies are an amazing apparatus. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But here they remember, Lord, we're just 
reassemble dirt with your breath in us. And then they read the Bible, we're told, for a quarter of the day, uh, for about three hours publicly. Then a quarter of the day, about three more hours, they spend time confessing their sins publicly and worshiping the Lord, another six-hour service. And again, this makes sense. This is the way the Bible works. It's like a mirror very often. I don't feel so bad about myself until I look in the mirror. You know what that's like in the morning, right? Well, they're seeing themselves for the first time or in an in a, in, important moment here in their true condition before God. And notice also, they separate themselves from foreigners. Now, that word simply means the pagan unbelievers in their midst. Now, it's not condemning the pagans or whatever, but what is happening is they're taking a stand and they're going a new direction now. The new generation is saying, okay, enough of idolatry, enough of going the wrong way. Now we're going to embrace the new life that God's given them. Remember, they had just come out of Babylon, out of Persia, where they had gone there because of worshiping idols and doing false things and being involved in pleasure and sex and all kinds of pagan practices. Now they say, no more, no more. We're home now. We're not the same people anymore. God's been so good to us. In fact, in verse 38 of this chapter, they record the prayer and then they make it a covenant. They all sign it. They say, we promise we're going to obey the Lord we're going to live by his definitions. No pagan unbeliever would ever have done that. So this is the Jews themselves, the covenant family of God, the believing family of God in Jerusalem, not only saying these prayers, but also stepping away from their, their old life, if you will. And by the way, I think church should be like this to a degree. I think it's a place where we should celebrate and experience joy. We did this morning, definitely. A place to focus on our relationship with God, to grow in our understanding of God's word, but it also should be a place of separation, a place where we make choices to embrace the new life and, and no longer looking for sinful things and, and like this new generation moving on to, to walk with the Lord. I, you know, look, if you're looking for sinful pleasures, we don't really provide that here at church. It's not really our focus. If that's what you're looking for, there are plenty of other places that do provide that. But if you're sick of that, if you're sick of this culture, if you're sick of what they value and don't value, if you're sick of being a, of, of an empty world, an empty direction, and you're hungry for God, then do what they did. Come and worship. Open your Bible. There's a better life to embrace, and that's what's happening here. Now, in verse 4, it gives us a list of the Levites. Aren't you impressed I can say their names? I got most of them wrong. But here they are, the spiritual leaders, and they lead out in this public prayer. And this happens to be the longest or one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament with the exception of a few psalms. Now, whenever you uh, go through a prayer in the Bible, you've got to always be careful. You, can't, you shouldn't overanalyze it. You're listening to somebody pray. You're eavesdropping. You probably shouldn't even be, be there if you get my drift, you know? And so... We need to be careful that when we look at a prayer, we don't squeeze the life out of it. Some ways, this is recorded as a model, like Jesus in Matthew 6, when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. Really, that's our prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is in, in John 17. He said, pray like this. He was giving us a model to teach us how to pray and to help us as we pray. So we're going to move pretty quickly through chapter 9. We won't get all of it this morning. And, and, and remember, though, some sections of the Bible should be studied academically and intellectually, but some shouldn't. Some should be, should be studied devotionally, and that's what you've got here. Chapter 9 is a, a prayer. 
difficult to outline because somebody's spilling their heart out before the people. We'll look at a few highlights. The ones that spoke to me, I have the microphones, so that's what you're going to hear. Uh, but we'll look through the major themes here and try and apply what we can. First thing I take notice of, in verse 5, they begin prayer with worship. They enthrone him. They recognize who he is. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. What I like about this is it's not a grocery list. Now, let me just say God cares about your grocery list. You can cast your cares upon him. We should bring our daily needs to him. That's, God's always happy to hear those and help you with those. But this is different. This is deeper. This is a trip down memory lane. This is a national testimony of the story of their failure. <laughs> it's not, it's, anyway, it's interesting to look at it that way. At the same time, though, in contrast, it's God's shocking, extreme patience and grace and kindness to his people, though they had been failures. I entitled this chapter, We're a Bunch of Sinful Rebels, rebels Maybe Even Losers, But You, You're So Different. You're so other. You're so holy. You're so good. You defy logic. You're so gracious and patient and kind to people like us. So chapter 9 is a healthy look backwards. By the way, when's the last time you took a trip down memory lane and remember where you came from and how would the, the mess that God called you out of and saved you out of? Look, looking back, is not, it's not good to wallow in the past. It's not good to live in the past. But there's a healthy part of that looking back and going, wow, you were so gracious and so faithful to me. You know, some years ago, actually quite a few years ago, the Israeli Air Force bought from the United States a bunch of F-16 planes. And um, they made one modification to the plane that cost $36 that were not standard on the American-made uh, jets. And it saved a lot of lives. They added a rear-view mirror. So they could see behind themselves, and when they were in battle, they could see their enemy and outmaneuver him. And I couldn't help thinking how many believers are shot down, spiritually speaking, because they fail to remember. They fail to look back from time to die and thank God for his goodness, and that's what they do here. So the first half, I find four statements from memory lane. Let's begin. In verses 7 and 8, he says, they say, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's one of the names for Babylon, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. To give to his descendants, you have performed your words, for you are righteous. So here's the first thing they remember about their past. He say, they say, you chose us in Abraham. Now, God chose Abraham. He was one man, and from that one man and his family, God made the Jewish nation. And so they are, in Nehemiah's day, part of that chosen family. God promised them a land, and Nehemiah and the people at this point were back in it for the first time in 70 years. They're standing in the land that God had promised Abraham, and, and what they're acknowledging is, God, you've kept your word. You chose us as your people, and you've given us a land. And by the way, the Jew today is a miracle. I mean, you look back over their history, it's distinct from any people through history, 
They've been attacked and persecuted and lost the land a handful of times, but God has always brought them back. And no matter where they lived in the world, they always retained their identity. That is a sociological miracle. Never happened in the history of the human race where a people that lose their homeland for a long period of time, they usually just melt in and intermarry among other people and disappear with their, of their distinctiveness. The Jews never did that by and large. They retained their identity and they're back in the land again since 1948. It's one of the evidences that Jesus is coming back soon because the Jews are back home again. But here they're acknowledging that. They say, Lord, you chose us, the land, you always have been faithful to us. And then he also, let's also remember that Abraham didn't deserve the land. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we're told that Abraham was a man from the other side of the river, and he worshipped and served other gods. So Abraham wasn't a godly man when God found him. He was an idol worshiper. He was a pagan. God appeared to him. He, he ministered to him. He made promises to him. He chose him and said, because of your heart I see, I'm going to use you to establish the nation. Now, by the way, you can say that, you know, that God chose you. Jesus said in John 15, 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I chose you to bear fruit. Now, look, when I was, when I was younger, when I knew a lot more than I know now, <laughs> the idea that God would choose me, and, and that's how I end up going to heaven ultimately, used to really bother me. I could argue, you know, how do you reconcile the free will of man and the sovereign choices of God? I mean, there, that's an age-old uh, conflict that happens among many Christians. How do you reconcile the two? Well, you, you really you can't, because both of them reconcile at a altitude that you and I can't visit. <laughs> yeah, if you go go up that high, you'd run out of air and choke and die. So, my point being is that that used to bother me. Jesus chose me, but now that I'm older, I like that a lot. I'm resting in that. That blesses me. It comforts me. Because I know now at 67, that's the only way I'm getting into heaven. If he had tapped me on the shoulder and brought me to himself. Spurgeon said these words, God had to choose me before I was born because he certainly would not have after I was. (laughs) I think that's all of our stories. So I would say this, God chose you. Jesus chose you. Argue if you want. But what it says is he could have had someone else and he wanted you. How does that make you feel this morning? Pretty good. It ought to. It's pretty incredible, pretty shocking. So here's my encouragement for you. Deal with it. God's chose you the way he chose the Jewish people. Now, in verse 9, a second thing they remember. He says, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of this land. For you knew that they had acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea, take note, on dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty or deep waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So the first thing they remember on memory lane is that you chose us. Secondly, they remember, God, you rescued us from slavery, from Egypt, 
and even the journey in the desert. Now, I love verse 9 where he says, you saw our affliction. That's a verse, I think, that it really harks to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where God says to Moses, he says, I have surely seen the suffering of my people, and I have heard their cries by reason of their taskmasters, and I am come down to deliver them. Some of the most comforting words in the Bible, God has seen the suffering of his people. God has heard their cries and frustration because of what they're going through, and I am come down. That's the story of the cross, by the way. It's exactly why God sent his son, because he has heard our cries, he has seen the suffering of a sin-sick world and our own sins that would condemn us for eternity. Therefore, I have come down, he said, to solve that, to deliver you. I love John 11. You should too. It's this, you know, the record of Jesus uh, bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Remember, he stands at the tomb and he weeps angry tears. And we always wonder, why did he weep at the uh, tomb of Lazarus? I think it's because he hates what sin has done to the human race. He, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, so it really wasn't about Lazarus. But he hates the separation, the grief, and the ultimate you know, uh, consequence of sin, death. That's exactly why he went to the cross. So here they say, Lord, you rescued us. We're a blood-bought people. You redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. That's the same for us. That's what the cross is for us. Not only that, he says, you kept rescuing us. If that were not enough, you did a bunch of miracles. You parted the Red Sea. Now, he mentions it twice in these verses. And one of the things you note in the Old Testament, very often when they talk about what God did in the past in terms of great miracles, they always talk about the Red Sea. It left a deep impression on the people of Israel because of what God did there. Because they were trapped between the Egyptians and the Red Sea, and, uh, and God opens the sea, and they went through on dry land. By the way, one of the things I've always loved about is statistically what it was like to move two or three million people one night through the middle of the Red Sea to cross the Red Sea. That would have meant they would have needed to be at least 2,000 people abreast, more than a mile abreast, to be able to get through and walk through the Red Sea on dry land in one night on the seabed. Now, the critics, they, they think that through, and they go, well, and then they say, it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. Add an extra E there. And the wind simply pushed back on the swampy areas that were only six inches deep, and, and that's how they got through in one night. Well, you just made it a bigger miracle because you just drowned the, the number one army in the world that day, Pharaoh's army, in six inches of water. <laughs> Plain and simple, it was a miracle. The Bible says the water was like a wall, as they went through the sea, they went through on dry land, and when they got to the other side, the sea closed in upon their enemies and drowned Pharaoh's armies. By the way, you're going to have Red Seas too. You're going to have impossible things that will come your way. You're going to feel trapped. You're going to face an enemy. Things are going to get not just impossible, but urgent, like they faced when the army was bearing down upon them. You're going to have a doctor's call. You're going to have a circumstance that's scary. And then you're going to look back over those moments and you're going to see that the only explanation as to why you survived that was a miracle. And very often God will take us to Red Seas to prove that he can be trusted. And when we're trapped and hurting, we don't really want a swamp God. What we want is a God that can part the Red Sea 
to allow us to go through on dry land. And then he says, if that were not enough, you rescued us every day in the desert. He mentions here, his presence went with them with a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Psalm 121 comments on that. And he says, in the psalmist says, the sun did not harm them by day, nor the moon by night. And what he was describing was the pillar of cloud and fire was not just a pole that went up into the sky. It was an umbrella, if you will, a covering. So that during the day, the pillar of cloud covered them, shaded them, and shielded them from the full brunt of the desert sun that would have wiped them out. And then the fire at night was a fire that lit up the sky for sure when they had to walk at night, but it also provided warmth against the extremes of cold at night in the desert. What they're saying, what, it, what they're remembering is for 40 years, you not only you guided us, but we never once felt the full brunt of the circumstances that we were in. That for 40 years, we were shielded and covered from a harsh circumstances in our journey. Not easy, for sure, but it could have been so much worse. It's also true of you. Did you know that? Psalm 103 says, God knows that we are made of dust and he has pity on his children. Same is true of you. He covers you and shields you and warms you and, and shades you. You have never one day in your life since you've received Christ, ever faced the full brunt of circumstances that could have come your way. He's always been there, shielding and helping you. Romans 8, 28 is in operation this morning. Not easy, but all things are working together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. What that means is God is working everything. He's shielding you. He's allowing certain things for his purposes but only at that which will give him glory and work for your ultimate good. Whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, it's true this morning. So first of all, God chose them like he's chosen you. Secondly, he rescued them and continues to rescue them as they made their way through their journey. And thirdly, verse 13 says this, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Now, uh, Exodus records this. It was God speaking audibly to the nation gathered around Mount Sinai. His voice was so loud it scared the dickens out of them. They eventually say to Moses, look, you talk to him. You go up and see what he wants us to do. And then you come down and tell us because one more commandment will kill us. You know what I mean? Uh, audible, loud voice. He says, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them, by, uh, commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. Not only that, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you gave or you had sworn to give them. So here's the third thing God gave them, or they remember, is God chose them, God rescued them. But when they got to Mount Sinai, God gave them his word. So God revealed himself to them. He opened their eyes. He opened their ears and their hearts. At Mount Sinai, Moses goes up. He gets the Ten Commandments and comes down. Then God spoke out law, the Ten Commandments, in the great valley, like a huge PA system. And God essentially says to the nation in a simple you know, reality, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is my will. Here's how to know me. Here's how to walk with me. Here's how to live right. In fact, Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, 
talks about that, that the commands of the Lord are pure. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, and in keeping them there is great reward. God gives them his word to guide them, to help them understand who he is, that they might grow in their relationship with him. Furthermore, he gave them the sacrificial system. Here's how a sinner approaches a holy God. There needs to be an innocent sacrifice. And then it says it mentions even the Sabbath. Now, by the way, the Sabbath used to always confuse me. You know, uh, work six days, take a day off. But think about what that communicates. What God was saying is, I don't want you for the work I can get out of you. Otherwise, I would say work seven, 24. He says, I want you to work six days, but I want you to set one day aside just to rest, just to enjoy me, just to get refreshed. I mean, that's the heart of God for us. I mean, it was such a discovery for me to realize that when God saved me, it wasn't because of the work he could get out of me. I mean, as a parent, you get that, right? You you didn't have kids for the work you could get out of them, right? We had four. I found out the kids don't do work. They, 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 They require work right? Uh, But in the same way with the Lord, God's not looking for work out of you. He wants you to serve him. Ultimately, that's called maturity. But what he's looking for is a relationship with you. If that were not enough, God says, or they remember that, that the Lord provided for their every need in the wilderness. Now, for two or three million people, you have to imagine the logistics of water and food. I found a guy who did some simple calculations Water for 2 million people, the daily needs for drinking and cooking, and let's not include baths, although I, I hope they took them, would amount to about 11 million gallons of water a day just for one day. And that God supplied water for 40 years in the middle of a harsh desert. That's pretty incredible. Manna, we're told in Exodus that uh, every day everyone was to collect one omer. An omer is about 10 cups of, of manna times 2 million people. You know how much manna that is? Daily. 4,500 tons. That would have been over 9 million pounds of manna dropping out of the sky every day for 40 years. Never forget. When I was saved about 11 years, I don't, I don't know why 11 just happened to turn me out. We had four kids at that time. I remember doing the bills and always being anxious. Is there going to be enough? You know, every, every, every month that was always, uh, is it going to go far enough? And I'm writing checks and going, Lord, I, we need a little more, <laughs> you know, commenting on how he provides and all that. And one time he spoke to me and he just said, for 11 years, have you ever done without? I said, no. He said, I pretty much can handle this, and he has. Some 42 years later, he has been faithful every month. Now, I know what you're thinking. If I could see a miracle like that, manna falling out of the sky, water out of the rock and all that, I would never doubt. I would be so committed. I'd read my Bible every day. I'd go to church every day. Well, think about it. The Jews saw daily miracles. They saw the Red Sea part, the pillar of fire and cloud every day. They saw manna fall from the sky every day. They heard God talk to them out loud from Mount Sinai. And yet here they are, having just been restored after being kicked out of the land and repenting because they had turned away from a God that great. Miracles don't always produce the 
uh, you know, the impact you think they do. Now, verse 16, one more. But they and our fathers acted proudly. Here's where the chapter transitions. They hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. The idea is they didn't obey. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders. They forgot what you did, that you did among them. They hardened their necks and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Remember Dathan and that squeaky voice. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. The Hebrew phrase means they provoke God over and over again with their disobedience. Yet, contrast, in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and, they, and the way they should go. You also gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Right, much more to come in the chapter, but they remember four things. You chose us, you rescued us every day, you gave us your word, and this is where the chapter transitions. They're, they're saying, Lord, you've been so good, and we've been a real problem. <laughs> but we disobeyed. But, and yet, we made a calf right, right in your face at the foot of Mount Sinai. And yet, nevertheless, as it will, in spite of all that we have done, their hearts were hard. They resisted him. They complained about everything. They took God for granted. And God says, but. Now imagine asking him at this point, you know, asking one of the Jews there, you know, did 45 tons of bread really fall from the sky every day? Yeah, it did. And they probably would have said, yeah, but it was all the same flavor. <laughs> I mean, Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors. I mean, we had to endure the same flavor all the time. And we got tired of manna pancakes, manna burgers, manna cotti. You know, it got boring after a while, you know. And imagine how they grumbled against that, you know. But think of it in, uh, from their enemy's perspective. They probably thought to themselves, how in the world did you guys beat the Egyptians? Oh, my gosh, you know. And did, did really, I mean, where did you get food and water in the desert for 40 years? And when they saw the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, especially at night, the enemies were freaking out. That's, that's why they weren't attacked, because they saw a supernatural presence in the middle of the camp. There's no way they're going to attack, and yet they're grumbling and actually rebelled against that. Here it's where I think it sinks in. This, this is something to take home today for each one of us. They say essentially, our sin and rebellion did not stop your plan or your promises or even your kindness. They say, we failed, but the sea still parted, the bread didn't stop, the pillar still remained, the water still flowed, and you still gave us a home. And Nehemiah and the people realize now, even when they rebelled, God still kept his promises and took care of them. They're saying our failure didn't stop your plan. As a nation, they survive, obviously. Jesus came from that nation. They exist today. And it shows that God is still kind. I'll leave you with one final thought. Romans 2.4 says, It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. 
Sometimes it's right, it's healthy for us to think back on God's faithfulness and goodness. And that will help you recognize uh, your need to confess and to stay humble and to stay dependent upon him. Now look, God, God wants you to be obedient. He wants you to grow up. And disobedience does carry consequences sometimes. But you need to remember that God is kind and gracious, and it's always available when we turn to him in repentance. And the funny thing about today is repentance is not popular. Today you never hear people taking responsibility or admitting they made, you know, done something wrong. We're a nation of victims and blame shifters. But biblically, as God's people, confession and repentance are beautiful. They're, they're freeing. They honor God. And they should be the practice of every healthy believer. Not to look back and live in the past, but to look back and recognize and acknowledge God's goodness sets the tone for the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this chapter. Still so much, much more to come, much more to learn, much more to be encouraged by. But Lord, I, we see ourselves in the Jewish people on this day, Lord. We're grateful that you chose us. It's mind-blowing and it's hard to reconcile in our minds, but so grateful that you chose us. Thank you that you rescued us that first time and every day since. Continue to rescue us. Get us through the harsh desert of this world on our journey toward our real home. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of your word, the truth of our need for a Savior. And Lord, thank you that my failures have not stopped your plan or altered your promises or stopped your kindness toward me, toward us. You really are an amazing God. You're so other. You're so different. You're so worthy of our worship and our discovery. May we be a people, Lord, hunger, hungry for that kind of understanding to deepen our relationship with you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.